0: See my God is the theme of my song The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue The key ways love from the first to the last Have won my affection and found my soul down. In church disagreements we need to focus on the truth Rather than on being right And love all thy prison, my son all praise to the Spirit who's whispered divine, line, mercy and pardon and righteousness mine, to the Spirit with the Divine. Fill mercy and pardon and righteousness mine, it's a joy to see all of you here, my wife and our members here at WSBC. It's my privilege today uh, just to bring you the Lord's word. And so we're thankful that in the past week we've been able to see just uh, more changes in the lockdown policy, that we're able to go outside or have lunch with some friends or, or go to the park. And Lord willing, we, we just pray that we'll be able to gather together to worship corporately soon. Sometimes you could be completely right in an argument, but still be completely wrong. I want you to think about any of your relationships you have, whether it's dating, or family members, with parents, with children, or with bosses, or coworkers, friendships, any of these. Can you think of an example of a conflict that you've had recently? What was it about? What was your goal in that conflict? Did you want to win the argument? Did you want to weaken the other side's argument? Was it more important to you To win this argument rather than to maintain that relationship. This is exactly what the church of Corinth was facing. And today we'll be examining Paul's response to the church and to us in these types of situations. As you may recall, we've already spent many Sundays learning through Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. In particular, we've seen how he's correcting some of the things that he's hearing regarding the church. We heard previously in chapter 7 that he responded back to some questions about marriage, about divorce, and then later on he also addressed their questions about the betrothed and the widow. These two questions seem pretty similar in scope. They're about marriage, they're about a single status. And so it seems that afterwards they brought up this third question in the letter about food being offered to idols. It just seems kind of out of the blue. It seems that it just doesn't match the other two things the first two questions about marriage and then this third one is about food and idols one of these things is not like the other and so again it shows just the common theme of the root of the problems of the corinthian church throughout the first corinthians whether it's about settling disputes in the church about church divisions and loyalty or instances of sexual immorality you can see that Their thinking is still stuck in the here and now, about marriage now, about food now. And they're mired and stuck in worldly matters. And Paul, once again, answers these questions not in the sense, no, it's not okay, but rather he takes a step back and he asks the church to reflect on their motives, on their heart, and their attitudes, because those are what are important and matter to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we can see that when conflicts or when disagreements arise in the church, Paul boils it down to how to approach these issues with two points. Do you really love God? And do you love others as yourself? These questions happen to be the same things that Jesus told us are the two greatest commandments. Love God and love others. Love your neighbors. So to look at our main idea today, based on today's passage, we can consider this. In church disagreements, we need to focus on the truth rather than on being right. In light of that, we'll be breaking up today's sermon into three sections as we study truth. True knowledge, true God, and true love. True knowledge, true God, and true love. It's my hope and prayer today that as we study His Word, we're reminded that it is our hearts and our love for each other that allows the world to see the example of Christ's love. That the Gospel is more important than being right. Please follow along as I read our passage from 1 Corinthians Chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through all whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered up to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. So for our first point, we'll be looking at how we should be focusing on true knowledge. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3. Upon reading the scripture, we should first take a step back and look at the context and why the church would approach Paul with this question. The members of the Corinthian church still worked and lived amongst the other citizens as well as international travelers of this economically prosperous city. They were living in the secular world. The city of Corinth saw its diverse population of people seeped in all sorts of immorality, and they were engaged in all kinds of different religious festivals. To prepare for these ceremonies, a lot of different foods and meats were need- needed for the sacrifices. And afterwards, they'd take these different foods and feast on them, the ones that were just sacrificed, in the different rituals. And most likely they'd invite friends and others to join in on these feasts. But the church would not choose to join in at these festivals in the temple. It's an easy decision since they know that they worship the one true Lord and not a pagan god. But the issue was that the meat was divided up. Some would be used and burned in the rituals. Some may be given to worshippers and they take it home, kind of like a da bao, and then another portion was packaged and then they were sold off to the markets. And so as a Christian at the time, you had to consider all of these outcomes that you may have been invited by a friend to dine and that at their home, they served you some of this meat that was once used as a sacrifice to idols. Or you may have accidentally went to the market and you bought this food yourself. So it creates two cancer Christians, some that had difficulty with their conscience in that They had consumed this meat that was originally intended as a sacrifice to a false and a pagan god, and the other camp would be Christians that had the knowledge to know that these pagan gods are just man-made structures of stone, so it doesn't really matter if they ate this meat. But it's not just that. In eating this food, they may have become aware of the harm that they were inflicting on fellow believers in their church. Or, to the other extreme, they may even boast or be prideful in their own self-defined maturity of understanding of this situation. And so Paul begins addressing this context as he differentiates between worldly knowledge and humble love for God. Worldly knowledge is dependent on self and is fueled by pride. In verse 1, Paul addresses that all of us possess knowledge. By using these quotes, he must be referencing a line or a quote that was found in the Corinthian letter to him. And so what is this knowledge that they all possess? This is found later in verse 4, that the church all knows that idols are nothing in this world. They have no power. But what Paul describes next is that having this knowledge, the people of the church have become puffed up. They've become prideful. Remember earlier in the book, the Corinthian culture is one that esteems eloquent speakers and masters of rhetoric. This is a culture that prizes worldly knowledge and looks for cues from the world in making judgment. Paul knows this struggle that the church has, and so he specifically here contrasts between these two important terms, knowledge and love. His verb use here shows that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Think of the difference between a balloon and bricks. One is inflated to look bigger, but it's really full of hot air, and the other one is constructed in a way that builds up and is solid. Later in 1 Corinthians 13, we Paul revisits this again when he says that love Is not puffed up. Worldly knowledge seeks to impress but isolate, while biblical love seeks to connect and cultivate closeness. Paul continues to hammer on the pride of those who value worldly knowledge. In verse 2, he writes, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul says in this verse that the man who knows, who thinks he knows the most, actually knows the least. Aristotle is a famous Greek philosopher that the Corinthians may have known or studied about, and he had the idea that the more you know, the more you know that you don't. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul also expands on this even more. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 to 5, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so can you can see here the pride that Paul talks about in this letter that it produces isolation, it produces envy, it produces cracks within the church, it produces cracks within these people deprived of the truth. Paul contrasts that this kind of shallow, prideful, worldly knowledge with a, humble love, with a humble love for God. Verse 3, he says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The Corinthians thought that they were only asking a specific question about idols and about food. But Paul answers the question by examining the root of this question and the sin that is existing in the heart of the church. This is similar to when Jesus answered the Pharisees' questions about the greatest commandment. That he said, first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22. To humbly love God, we are then known by him. When we refocus ourselves on true knowledge, we we should reflect here on Paul's words That true knowledge is found in love for God. Christian behavior should be founded on love, not on our knowledge. Have you considered that our level of knowledge of theology, of understanding these things, they should be proportionately matched with the level of love and humility that we have towards others and towards others in the church. So that is true knowledge that we should focus on. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. So this God, that leads us to the second point, we recognize that He is true God. We need to focus on the true God in times of disagreement with others. Listen to again to verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In verse 4 here, you can see Paul talks about the vanity of idols. As Christians, they know from the second commandment not to have any idols. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So there's no disagreement in the church here that idols are going against God's law. I think every Christian knows that we aren't to have idols, as Paul stated. However, the issue here is that the consumption of, these, of this food that was used as a sacrifice to idols. Paul writes a section in, to reassert that the Lord is over all and greater than any of these hand-carved gods, That there is, that these are fake gods that have no power. And so he even emphasizes here that there are many gods in heaven and on earth. He does this to show that there's numerous quantities of these gods, but that none of them, even added together, are more than our true Lord. They pale in comparison, and they're not even close. And he also reminds the church that there are many snares, there are many idols, there are many gods that exist, these mini-gods with a lowercase g, that can pull us away from the real one. They can steal our time, they can steal our attention. They can steal our devotion. Are we as clear as Paul is here on the vanity of these many idols, of these gods? Do we find ourselves sucked in by these idols in our lives? In the same section, he then contrasts with what he just spoke about on the many idols with the next verse about the truth that there is only one true God and that Jesus is the true Lord. First, he says that for us, that we need to live like there's only one true Lord in our lives. Are we living lives that reflect that? That there's not many, many smaller idols and smaller mini-gods that pull us away from the one true God. And the second is the sovereignty of God the Father and of Jesus Christ. Because it's repeated here, for both God the Father and for the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. The clarification shows the church where all things come from and the purpose of our lives to live for the Lord. This is the truth of who God is that we need to be at the center of even when there are disagreements in the church. To remember that Christ died for all of our sins, that all things come from God, and that Jesus is what gives us purpose and meaning in our life. If there are any here on this call that do not know or are unsure of Jesus as their Savior, there's no reason to wait. Talk to a member, talk to a friend here that understands the gospel and what it means for your life. And if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, is Jesus at the center of your thoughts when there are disputes and conflicts? Is your own self-worth or wanting to be right, is that at the center of a conflict? And the third and final point of today's scripture, we look at true love. The church's letter asked Paul about it, if it was okay about eating this food, but in his reply, he's refocusing the church back to God and how they are to love God and to love each other. Look at verses 7 to 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you are sinning, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Here we say in the third point, true love. This is not some kind of Disney love of a magic true love's kiss or happily ever after. This isn't a romantic love. This is a love that Jesus demonstrates and describes for us in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. And we know that Jesus didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk, he did as he taught. Jesus Himself demonstrates this love in 1 John 3:16. It says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, how is the scene here now in our third point of true love, specifically in regards to a disagreement in the church? Well, if we aren't even willing to lay down our our rightness on an issue, if we're not willing to be humble to a fellow brother or sister about an issue, then why would we even be willing to lay down our life for them? So, one common phrase that we say in our family is, I love you too much to argue. Usually, we have a dispute about something and it's something small, but then we'll say that to, to remind ourselves that we are willing to submit. We're willing to be, we don't have to prove that we're right in an argument and let it drag on that we love each other too much to argue. This is what we want to see in our church. The church's letter here was asking Paul if it's okay to eat the food that was offered to idols. They were hoping for an easy answer and then just follow that answer, follow that law. Is it okay? Yes. Then we can go to the market and we can buy it. Everyone can do that. Is it not okay? All right, fine. Then none of us can go buy it. We can just all not partake in this food. But instead, Paul doesn't give them that much of a direct response that they are hoping for. He again shows them how They're to act as a result of their changed lives about the love that they have for God and about the love they have for others in the church. And we love others in the church with our actions and with the intention to bring them towards God, to bring them towards our Savior. And so we can see here how we are to love the church in three different ways to protect and guard others in the church, specifically guard against temptation, guard against pride, and guard against self-guilt. To guard the church against temptation, to guard against pride, and to guard against self-guilt. In saying that we want to guard the church and other brothers and sisters against temptation, we link again to this matter of of eating food. Let's look at that first. Paul talks about the former association in verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. The members of this Corinthian church were recent converts. Christianity was still spreading early through in that time. So it wasn't a generationally passed down thing. It wasn't that their parents or grandparents are Christians. And so that means that these newly converted believers were adults that may have had a history of idol worship, these former associations with them. At the very least, they may have had family members or other close friends in their lives that were still involved in attending these temple rituals and festivals for worship. In a similar way, we have that same dynamic here. Many of our members and our friends here in church may have become believers later on in life, maybe in college or after college. And many of us here maybe have disapproving parents or family members or other friends that do not want you to follow Jesus. So this dynamic gives us a clear picture of what life was like BC, before Christ in our lives. And how his salvation has drastically changed the way we live our lives. Our life patterns are different. Our motivations, our purpose for what we do have changed. Even daily life, what we do in the morning, what we do in the afternoon is going to look different. There is a stark contrast of knowing Jesus. But this past still exists and Paul still here is noting that there are certain things that may happen that the church members may do that may jog their memories of others or remind others to pull them back into those memories of their old life and sin before they knew Jesus, before they submitted to Jesus. We may have historical sin. We may have historical tendencies that we have or things that bring us back to an earlier time in our life that reminds us of that. It may create things like guilt or temptation to go back to that or stir up past feelings of anger or of hurt. You see, the human mind is an amazing thing. In a car ride the other day with my family, the kids were asking me about how a complex computer or an iPad or a phone could do math really fast. At the time, they're trying to convince me that I should let them use that to calculate their math homework. And so I told them that the human brain's capacity for learning, for memory storage, for processing processing is even more complex than a computer. And that's because computers are only designed by man, but the brain is designed by God. Scientists have analyzed that the brain's storage and the processing memory of everything is the equivalent of one petabyte. Do you know what a petabyte is? It's 1,000 terabytes. This processing ability can handle multiple tasks at once. Just think, when you hear my voice, your brain understands the words that I'm saying. You read the vocal inflections. You interpret physical cues. And you make all these connections to emotions and memories that you may have about me from previous encounters. All of this in a split second. And so that's not even considering some of your listening to me speak in English when English isn't your native language. So there's an extra step of translating and determining the meaning. And English is a, a, a nuisance of a language because there's words that can't be taken at face value. There are different nuances or concepts encoded in. All that to say is when you watch someone do something, there certain things that may strongly jerk your memory back to another time. A certain smell may make you think of a, a specific place or location. A certain phrase may make you think of a specific person. And so here, Paul is reminding them that when they do something like this, that some people may have a former association with idols, may be bringing them back strongly to be tempted back to sin, to be tempted back to stumble, to be tempted back to that feeling of guilt. If they're triggered and they see... Uh, someone they trust, someone that they they respect, eating that ceremonial meat, to watch people that are what they considered mature Christians engage in eating of this food that was sacrificed to idols, they may cause that may cause temptation, that may cause struggles for these young believers. Beyond that, the fact that they see another Christian eating this, they themselves may be put in a cyclical pattern of guilt, thinking that okay, well, it's okay, if, if he's doing it, it's okay to eat this meat. But then after doing so, they fall into a, a remorse and despair cycle, thinking that they have sinned, they regret this decision to eat this food, their own conscience is convicting them, they may even question their own faith. So while theologically speaking, eating this meat is really of no consequence to their standing with God, Paul still urges the church here Not to eat in these pagan temples, not to eat this meat because it may lead to the destruction, to the death, to the falling away of a weaker brother or sister. Are we aware of any past connections or of possible points of temptation for your brothers or sisters around you? Are there any past struggles or sins? Are you yourself having struggles or sins when you see certain actions happening? And as a church, are we ensuring or are we welcoming certain safeguards to help with accountability, to help with each brother and sister, to guard against these opportunities for temptation for other members? The simplest way to do that is just to talk one-on-one to another brother or another sister about these things, about these struggles from former associations that you have, to rejoice together that it's the Lord Jesus that has set you free from them, but to recognize that the pull... The strong pull of memories can bring you back to that state before and to seek prayer, to seek help with others as a group. The second guard that Paul talks about here is guarding against pride. How we love the church by guarding against pride. And so there is freedom in these decisions. It doesn't mean that everyone is still okay to do it. Similar to before in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, When it is lawful, but is it helpful or is it good for me? do that verse 8 here says food will not commend us to God we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak if we make ourselves a judgment call or decide that we are spiritually mature on a particular topic it leads to the possibility of becoming prideful or something that was only revealed to us through the spirit Paul says here that they are no worse off if they do not eat it, nor no better off if they do, in order to remove any self-contrived spiritual advantage or maturity that can result to form pride. And so these brothers and sisters should not carelessly do these things that may cause other brothers and sisters to struggle. Paul here also uses the phrase, this right of yours he uses more of this in a tone from the Corinthian perspective that they believe themselves that we have this right, we have this freedom, we have a liberty to do these things, to eat this food. And again, while the theological argument of it is true, there's the idols are, are powerless, that there's vanity in these idols. But they forget that the only reason why is because they have that freedom in Jesus, that the Corinthians only have that freedom to eat that because Jesus has set them free from it. And so Paul is saying that this isn't a right, something that's owed to them. Rather, it's Jesus that has set them free, that has given them this freedom from sin. But any rights that we do have, we only have it because it's excuse me, granted through Jesus Christ. The issue here again was about food offered to idols, and that seems pretty far and removed in all our contexts. Here we don't really see food being offered to idols as much. Once maybe when I was celebrating Qin with my family in Taiwan, we opened up the food afterwards and everyone dug in and ate that food and we didn't find anything wrong with that. But it's not just about food sacrifice to idols. And so we can take some time to think about that. What are some of the issues in our church or between other brothers and sisters here that may create this kind of pride, guilt, tension, or division? Is it about the music that you listen to, movies that you watch, websites, news articles, books, other media that we consume? It's about hobbies, about gambling, about playing video games, playing violent video games, social media. Or maybe it's even about practicing certain holidays, the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy, or Santa Claus, or trick-or-treating. I can see a similar topic in this vein of uh, would be about drinking or alcohol. There's many times where there's different pockets of believers that I've encountered before where they think, where they do not believe a Christian behavior should include the consumption of alcohol. The Lord is clear that there is a line that we should not cross when drinking so that we're not drunk on wine. But some Christian denominations have not allowed for drinking at all within its church members. It could become a point of pride. I know how to handle my alcohol. This other brother should learn how to do it like me. Again, to seek each other in uh, humility and in love is what the Lord calls us to. Sometimes it's not even a point of being pride, but it's being legalistic in these matters. To take a false pride and compare ourselves with others. To probably proclaim, we're right and you aren't. Sometimes we can be completely right, but at the same time also be completely wrong. As God's ambassadors in this world, it's a balancing act of staying culturally engaged, but also biblically rooted. We need to stay culturally engaged, but biblically rooted. In considering these questions, we move on to the third way that we can love the church and to guard against temptation for self-condemnation. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother of, for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ." Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In these verses, verses 10 to 13, Paul shows that by doing this in front of another brother or sister, you may influence them to also encourage them to do it as well. For example, if a well-known leader or elder in the church would eat this meat that was known to have been offered to idols, other newer members to this may see this and believe that they have that liberty as well but then this will be a member of the church that may look up to the elder but personally still have a conviction and a conscience that this food is tainted and that they should not be touching it, they should not be eating it. So this would create a confusion and possibly even falling away from the faith because of disillusionment. There's a saying in English, never meet your heroes, which just implies that a celebrity you may admire in movies or a sports star that you idolize, that they'd only disappoint you with their humanless humanness and their flaws when you do meet. So here you can see the the dynamic of someone that looks up to this leader or someone that wants to follow what the leader does in the church. But then when they see them doing that, that they themselves become disillusioned. Paul discusses whether or not strong conscious Christians should eat or be involved with food sacrifices to idols because their actions are going to influence the rest of the community and those that possibly have weak conscience Christians. It's beyond that too. The strong conscious Christians... We're leading the weak conscious Christians into sin because the weak did not understand that God is the only opinion that matters. Here he says that they did not have the knowledge. And so eating or not eat, uh, eating the food sacrificed to idols does not make a person better or less important in the eyes of God. But this is what the weak did not understand. They ate the idol food, but then they were not fully yet convinced that this was permissible for them. Consequently, in verse 12, Paul says that if you sin against others, you also sin against Christ. So how are we to act to show true Christian love to others in the church? Well, to outdo each other in humility and in showing faith and showing honor. In Philippians chapter two, verse three to four, Paul writes that we are to follow Christ's example of humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. And showing honor to each other in Romans twelve. Verse 9-10 to Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. When differences in opinion or disagreements or even conflicts arise, is our posture one to show humility and show honor? Are we willing to put down that delicious steak if you know that it's causing another brother or sister to stumble into sin? You see, this argument provides two sides of the same coin, that in actuality, we're no better if we choose one side or the other in our standing with God. Food itself isn't going to push us towards God or pull us further away from Him in this case. The way that the two opposing sides resolve this matter is what needs to be examined. That if there's a specific habit or a specific action that's hindering the advancement of the gospel, and it's a habit that one side can easily put down, then Paul says that, It's loving to do so. The question of being right over a matter of food offered to an idol still may seem quite disconnected and irrelevant in our current context. But the root of this question, again, is still a valid issue because the heart is something we see that we still need to look at. Reflect again about church unity, as well as how we approach church unity and the framework of how we prioritize our loves. Are there worldly affairs? Are there other things that are sticking points that have become stuck in our relationship with other believers? Is it political? It's about what's happening in current events? Is it something that we see in our social context? Anything that hinders the unity of the church? How are we showing humility? How are we showing honor to each other? We should conclude. Sometimes we think that being right is more important than what's actually right. In this case, the Corinthian church had the correct knowledge and theology. They knew that the idols were powerless, were meaningless but the lack of care and love for each other would cause them to sin either unintentionally or sometimes purposely through pride against each other and eventually to God. Friends, we shouldn't seek to be right. We should seek to be righteous. We don't want to outshine others with our own worldly knowledge, but we should let the knowledge of God shine to others. The fact is these matters of detail and of differences we need to be willing to lay aside our personal feelings of being right or having rights, to lay them down as the Lord Jesus did. That he had all the rights, all the authority and all the glory, but he laid them down, became poor, so that we would be redeemed and that God would be glorified. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the only true God, we praise you, Lord, as our Savior, the one that has shown us mercy when we did not deserve it, the one that has given us rights when we had none, that you give us freedom through Jesus Christ. And you give us counsel and wisdom through the Holy Spirit to have discernment when making these decisions, when we have disputes with others. Give us the wisdom on how to love each other in the church and that our love towards each other will will let the world know that we love and that we follow Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.